listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens. And joining me today is Jason Crawford. Jason is the CEO of Root, The Roots of Progress, where he writes essays on the history of technology and philosophy and the philosophy of progress. Jason, welcome back to, sh- to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Good to be here. Uh, sorry, it's been a little bit of a long day, so just uh, trying to get into things here. Uh, since we last spoke, Roots of Progress has really taken off, though. Um, I think it's been over a year since we did a podcast. So uh, for people who may not have caught your last appearance, why don't you just tell people a little bit about the project? How did it start and uh, kind of what are your goals with it? Yeah, sure. Um, You know, the Roots of Progress started off as a blog. Really, it was an intellectual hobby of mine, a side project about five years ago. Uh, I started researching the the history of human progress and especially technological and industrial progress, um, how the modern world was made, what were the discoveries and inventions that gave us our standard of living. And um, long story short, it turned into a, uh, a full-time project for me. I became a full-time independent researcher in 2019, and uh, since then have turned it into a, uh, a nonprofit organization uh, dedicated to establishing a new philosophy of progress for the 21st century. Great. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to talk about like a couple of the posts that you've done uh, recently, just to give our listeners an idea of kind of what you write about and sort of introduce uh, them to introduce our audience to you and uh, just give them a little bit of a uh, sense of kind of what you're working on. Um, in April of this of 2021, um, you wrote a review of a book titled Why Has Nuclear Been a Flop? And you, you write quite a bit about nuclear power. Um, I want to talk kind of broadly about nuclear energy, um, try to get your thoughts on it. But, uh, you know, what, what are the arguments that are sort of laid out in that book? And what are your thoughts on why uh, why we haven't seen the sort of progress that um, has been promised in nuclear energy for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Why Nuclear Power Has Been a Flop was a, a really good book from uh, Jack Devaney, who is the uh, one of the co-founders of ThorCon. Um, uh, so here's basically what I learned uh, from that book and from sort of further research about kind of what happened in the nuclear industry. Um, so nuclear power, uh, if, it had, uh, if it had stayed on the growth trajectory that it had been on in the you know 1960s or so, it would today be essentially about 100% of electricity generation. Instead, it plateaued at about uh, 10% of world electricity generation today. So what happened? Well, the proximal cause of why we don't have nuclear power for everything is that uh, nuclear is expensive. So particularly in the United States. Um, the the costs uh, of of nuclear energy are just not competitive. Uh, well, why is that? Um, well, it's certainly not in the fuel costs because the you need an extraordinarily small amount of nuclear fuel um, to to keep a plant running. Uh, a you know a a coal plant might receive a shipment of coal every you know week or so, um, but a nuclear plant swaps out its fuel literally less than uh, typically once a year. Uh, it's more like annual maintenance than you know a regular kind of kind of operation. So um, so where does it come from? Well, it turns out it's all all the costs are upfront. So the reason that nuclear electricity is expensive is because you spend an enormous amount of money constructing a plant over a long period of time, and all those upfront costs and the financing of those costs then have to, uh, you have to make those costs back by charging more for electricity over the the years of the life of the plant. Um, So if you could build a nuclear plant faster and cheaper, you could get much much cheaper 
electricity prices for nuclear. Well, why does it cost so much to uh, to build a plant, and why does it take so long? Um, Devaney argues that it's not the size and complexity of the plant itself so much. He says that that is more or less roughly equivalent to like a coal plant. Uh, in fact, a lot of the machinery is very similar. I mean, what both of them do is heat up water, which you then drive a steam turbine, right? Um, the, the only difference is where the heat comes from. And uh, so, okay, so, so, so if these things are sort of equivalent, maybe size and complexity, where does it, or, or, or ought to be, then where does the extra nuclear cost come from? Well, Ultimately, he lays uh, the blame at sort of the feet of the um, of the kind of regulatory complex that we have, um, and in particular, uh, what happened in uh, so if you go back and you look at the history of of nuclear uh, building, especially in in the U.S., um, although really the same story kind of plays out through most of the world. Um, so the very first nuclear plants, were, unsurprisingly, were very expensive to build. The very first thing, one of anything, is typically very expensive to build. But what happens is, uh, because you're almost just prototyping it, right? You're still learning how to do it. There's a lot that has, you haven't hit economies of scale yet. Um, but what typically happens in, uh, in industry is that uh, there is an effect called learning by doing, uh, or the, the, the learning curve or the experience curve, where co unit costs come down as a function of production volume. Uh, this was originally observed, I think, in the 1930s with airplane manufacturing. Um, and ever since then, it has been this, uh, this thing that economists have observed very regularly in a number of industries. Um, typically, there's some power law where with every doubling of uh, production volume, you can uh, there's some constant percentage, say 10 to 25% reduction in unit costs. Um, now, if you look at the numbers, nuclear power industry was coming down the, le the learning curve pretty steeply uh, from uh, through through the 1960s, um, uh, 50s and 60s, uh, where every doubling of uh, uh, cumulative capacity built was resulting in about a 25% decrease in costs, if I recall correctly. Pretty steep learning curve. Um, then in the early 1970s, something went terribly wrong. The learning curve inverted. And costs started to go up with uh, with capacity built. We got uh, negative learning, right? Sometimes called forgetting by doing. <laughs> uh, I I don't think this happens very often. Uh, my my understanding is this is a pretty rare phenomenon to see this kind of thing happen. Where did it come from? Well, if you go back and you look at the history, um, uh, essentially it came from a uh, uh, rapidly escalating and highly turbulent regulatory environment in the, the late 60s and early 70s, um, where the, uh, the rules were sort of constantly changing, sometimes being uh, the new rules were being retrofitted or backfitted, applied to projects that had already been built or were already in, uh, under construction. Um, in addition to sort of more scrutiny from, uh, from uh, the NRC, uh, actually, at that time, it was the AEC, and then later it would become the NRC. Um, you also got a lot of just obstructionist tactics from uh, from local communities who decided they just didn't want nuclear in their city. Um, and so they could call for hearings. Uh, they could hold things up you know, for, for a long time in um, environmental review or, or sort of related hearings. Um, and sometimes there were just outright shenanigans. Um, in one instance, uh, a town, uh, when a nuclear plant was ready to open, there was, uh, the, the local town was supposed to go through a, uh, like a safety drill, some sort of planning exercise for safety before the plant could open. And essentially the plant, the, the city just refused to cooperate. Um, and that held things up for another, you know, number of years. Uh, 
So uh, there are uh, multiple cases of uh, nuclear projects built in around the, the 70s or so um, where, you know, th that began with a, you know, timeline of, uh, say, five years or, you know, on the single sort of single digit number of years and a budget of, you know, maybe in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And then um, in, in one case, I recall uh, the project just uh, got went through delays and cost escalations to the point where eventually it had been decades and the projected final cost was in the several billion dollars. And uh, they eventually just abandoned it and shut it down and never, uh, you know, never even completed the plan or turned it on. Um, Devaney says that there was something in a, a sort of uh, historical uh, thing in particular that happened around the oil crisis. So um, in, the, in the early 70s, uh, the, you got uh, these oil shocks, uh, the price of, of, uh, of oil went way up. Um, and this sort of should have been nuclear's moment, right? Um, this should have been the time when nuclear could, could shine and come through and a lot of it could get built. But what happened was, um, because energy prices were super high, anybody who was working in the energy industry was willing to accept higher costs in order to uh, get energy built and deployed. Um, now, in the coal industry, this led to uh, maybe problems with labor where they're demanding higher wages or problems with suppliers where they're raising their costs and so forth, right? Um, and all of those things happened. Um, but when those things happen and then in the future energy prices come down again, where you can renegotiate with labor and with your suppliers and so forth in the new environment. However, with nuclear, what the high prices uh, uh, and high costs took the form of was uh, a regulatory uh, uh, escalation. And so the it, whereas industry might normally push back against uh, unreasonable regulations and push for something more reasonable. Uh, basically, in Devaney's telling, the, uh, the nuclear industry just, um, uh, just sort of accepted the regulations and said, okay, whatever, we just got to get these plants built. The problem with regulation is that it's a ratchet. It's very, very difficult to undo. And so when all of this was over and the energy prices came down, uh, they were left with, uh, with, with these regulations. Um, a really core centerpiece of this, I'll just sort of mention it and then, and sure. then maybe I'll stop you know, for a moment in case you want to take this in a different direction, but um, is uh, the, the NRC's concept of ALARA, the as low as reasonably achievable standard for, uh, for radiation and the uh, linear no threshold or LNT theory that that's based on. Um, it was also a really central piece of Devaney's book. Um, but maybe I'll just pause here because I've been talking for a while and see if you want to jump in. No, it's great. Question. Yeah. So, so obviously a lot of these problems are kind of lingering today with nuclear and we, we see it across a lot of industries where uh, you basically have this buildup of regulations that, that sometimes are uh, embraced by the industry or um, uh, that just kind of exist and are lingering and are preventing new development. I think today it takes like, what is it? It's like more than eight years to build a nuclear power plant or something um, uh, eight years is probably the uh, ambitious schedule that projects start out. Okay, with. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, wh whatever it is, I, I I know it's a very long time. So uh, um, I guess, you know, one of the things that probably needs to change is the thinking of the industry. And uh, you wrote a little bit about how this book talks about how um, like a, a shift in the thinking from industry could help uh, sort of um, – Untether, yeah. untether nuclear from a sort of regulatory mess that's preventing it from being a bigger part of our uh, energy um, 
gen- yeah. generation. Yeah. So so Devaney doesn't put all the sort of blame at the feet of of the regulators. Um, he in his telling the the industry is uh, is part of the problem in certain ways. Um, one thing that he blames the industry for is um, how they dealt with uh, the issue of safety and the possibility of failure or disasters. Um, essentially, uh, my understanding of, of, of his complaint is that um, the, the nuclear industry went with telling people that a meltdown was basically impossible, that a meltdown would only happen in like one every million reactor years or, or something like that, um, that we had made these things so safe that there would never be a meltdown. And then, of course, there were meltdowns. There was Chernobyl, there was Three Mile Island. Um, uh, uh, and notably, by the way, the, um, the nuclear industry was already pretty much killed before Three Mile Island. The, um, there was a, I think there were no new nuclear plants ordered after about 1974 uh, for, for, for several decades. Um, and Three Mile didn't happen until I think 76, 79. Um, in, in any case, you know, Three Mile just put sort of, you know, maybe one more nail in a coffin that was already shut. Um, but uh, the fact is that, I mean, Devaney says that what they should have done is, um, is I mean, he looks as to the airline industry, for instance, as a model, right? The airline industry does not say, look, planes will never, ever crash. It's impossible. They're perfectly safe. Um, but what they do is they try to they try to work to make it safer over time. Um, by admitting that planes can crash, they take, uh, they take precautions like, for instance, putting a black box on the plane so that we're going to collect data and then do a root cause analysis. Um, now, in the case of a meltdown, I mean, in the case of a plane crash, you know, most, most plane crashes are, are fatal for everybody on board. Uh, but in the case of a meltdown, it's it doesn't have to be that bad. Um, in fact, uh, I mean, basically nobody died from Three Mile Island, for instance, um, uh, certainly not from, from radiation. It is, uh, it is quite likely that nobody died from radiation at Fukushima um, as well. Um, so... Um, uh, what what Devaney says is basically like instead of putting all of this emphasis on there should be you know we can make we can make them absolutely meltdown proof the emphasis should be as much on by the way if there is a meltdown here are the safety uh, procedures and uh, mechanisms that will contain the meltdown and make sure that there isn't uh, a large radiation you know release or or loss of life. Yeah. So earlier you mentioned the linear no threshold uh, regulatory sort of uh, environment that exists. Um, I'm, I'm not like completely familiar with that whole debate, but I know that there is a huge debate in regulatory um, circles about the way that we deal with like um, basically the, the effect that radiation or other chemicals or things can have on people. Um, can you talk about that just like a little bit more? Because I, I know that stuff is really interesting. It's really important for uh, nuclear energy sp- specifically. Um, so yeah, could you just give our listeners like a, a little bit more detail about that? Because uh, it's something yeah, that sure. I, I, I haven't personally done very much research on, but I know it's it's very important. Sure. Yeah. Um, so you might think that the way uh, a nuclear sort of safety regulation might go is to uh, sort of investigate the effects of radiation on uh, on health, figure out what is kind of a, a safe threshold, 
um, and then set some regulatory standard that says, uh, you know, you can't exceed this threshold of radiation exposure to people um, or, or, you know, with some safe, some large margin of, of safety. Um, and, uh, you know, even in a reasonable scenario, like maybe a meltdown, you have to make sure that the surrounding populace within whatever, outside of whatever radius is not exposed to such and such level of radiation. That is not how the regulations go. Instead, the uh, the NRC has formally adopted a, uh, a policy called ALARA, which is stands for as low as reasonably achievable, A-L-A-R-A. And what this says is essentially there is no threshold uh, radiation dose, which we're going to declare is safe. Um, and you must simply drive down the uh, the 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 radiation sort of levels and the you know expected um, you know the the radiation level in the event of a of a of a meltdown, let's say, times the probability of the meltdown, right? Like the um, the the expected level of radiation. You just you have to keep driving those down um, as far as is reasonable. Well, what determines reasonable? Ultimately, reasonable is determined by what you can afford. Uh, it's determined by costs. And the claim that Devaney makes is that what this means ultimately is that um, the nuclear industry cannot even innovate its way out of this problem because if they came up with some innovation that achieved lower overall electricity costs, that would just be evidence to the regulator that they could be doing even more to drive down uh, uh, radiation risk. Uh, in fact, it's almost at the point where you could almost interpret it as if nuclear ever were to become cost competitive with other forms of energy, that would be ipso facto evidence that the regulator had not done his job. So that's a pretty bad situation to be in. So where does this Alara come from? Well, ultimately it is founded on um, this model of radiation uh, health damage known as the linear no threshold model LNT. What does this say? Well, uh, it says that, uh, it says a couple of things. One is it says that there is no threshold no safe dose, right? Um, the other thing is, so, so even the tiniest dose of radiation could have, will have some tiny but non-zero, uh, you know, cancer risk, let's say. Um, oh, but the other thing that it says is that the effect is linear. So that is um, any given dose uh, uh, versus, you know, if you compare any two doses, no matter how small or large, and one is 10 times bigger than the other, then that means that the 10 times bigger dose will give you 10 times as much cancer risk. The other thing about the, uh, the LNT model is that it doesn't have any, um, uh, the, the timing of the dose doesn't matter. So receiving a, a, a dose of 10x uh, all in the space of one day or hour or minute is this has the same health effect in this model as receiving one tenth of that dose uh, a day for ten days, or even one tenth of that dose a month for ten months. Right. Gotcha. Um, so it doesn't matter how spread out or how concentrated uh, the the radiation is. It's supposed to. It's just the total uh, amount linearly added up um, is 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 what your health risk or damage is under this model. Now, uh, and that also holds, I should add, for um, spreading it out across people as well, right? So if, uh, if you have a dose that is enough to kill one person, you know, say with certainty, um, and then you, sp you give one millionth of that dose to a million people, uh, then the LNT model says that you still ex have an expected you know, one death out of those million people um, in terms of the risk. Yeah, um, I, was, I was just going to jump in and say, we know from like practical experience that that model can't be right because we go and get x-rays right and under that well i mean i right? mean you under, could argue yeah 
you could argue that, okay, yes, we go into actuaries. I mean, that can still be a very low dose, right? Right. Um, it's not saying, the LNT model doesn't necessarily say that any dose of radiation, um, it certainly doesn't say that any dose will kill you, right? It's right. just saying any dose gives you a tiny, you know, but you can imagine getting an x-ray might be worth some infinitesimal cancer risk, right? Sure. So I don't think the fact that we get okay. x-rays doesn't contradict LNT. But, um, uh, so Devaney devotes the, uh, by far the longest chapter of his book, in fact, I think it's uh, at least 25% of the, of the book, to um, examining the evidence for this LNT model and essentially dismantling it. Um, so my understanding from that and, and from some other things I've read are essentially LNT flies in the face of both theory and evidence. So in theory, um, what's going on is that uh, radiation ultimately can, uh, can mess with your DNA, right? Um, that's how it gives you cancer. Um, it can cause a, in particular, it can cause a break in the DNA. It, it can break it apart. Now, when DNA breaks in the cell, uh, your cell does have DNA repair mechanisms. Um, uh, however, uh, if the breaks come too fast, if there are too many of them all at once, then the error rate in repairing the DNA goes nonlinear. And this is where you can get cancer from because you can get mutations in cells or, or problems with DNA, right? Okay. Um, so, I mean, my model of this is uh, an analogy I used to this would be like um, drinking alcohol, where, uh, you know, you could drink one beer a night for a month, and, you know, probably nothing bad, really bad would happen to you, you might get a little tipsy, right? Um, but if you drank all of that, in, if you 30 beers in one night, you, you know, you could easily kill yourself. So, uh, or, or, if, or if I don't have those numbers exactly right, you can adjust that number to whatever, you know, whatever sure, the lethal yeah. dose is, right? If you, if you just split it into 100 parts and, and did one over 100 nights. Um, so uh, your body has ways to deal with um, toxins, with damage, with, you know, that sort of thing, but it can't deal with it past a certain um, level. Um, Devaney also points out that uh, radiation therapy for cancer, for instance, takes advantage of this, like they spread the dose, uh, the radiation dose out over multiple days to allow you, you know, time to recover. Gotcha. Um, and there are definitely known cases of, you know, um, people receiving uh, very low doses over a very long period of time, um, and it not uh, you know, it, 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 and it not appearing to have any adverse health effects, even though if they received the, that entire dose all at once, it would surely have killed them. Um, one important thing to, to realize here is that um, we all uh, receive some dose of radiation every day uh, naturally through the background environment. Radiation is a natural thing. Um, it comes uh, out of, uh, I mean, there are, there, are, um, uh, there are rocks and sand in some places that are naturally radioactive. Um, uh, many foods are naturally radioactive to a small degree. Um, uh, just there's radiation from, uh, from outer space. And so just the elevation that you're at, if you're in a, an elevated city like, you know, like Denver, uh, you know, you get an extra radiation dose. If you fly in an airplane, you get an extra radiation dose. Um, now, all these things are very tiny. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the LNT essentially says that, um, you know, receiving, um, uh, you know, uh, if, if you were to receive, say, you know, 100x the background dose, um, that that is just as bad in terms of, you know, overall health effects as 1,000 people receiving an extra dose that is, you know, 10%. Of the of the natural background radiation, right? And it just yeah, yeah. seems to 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 common sense. It would seem that like, given the background natural background radiation varies quite a bit through different places, and we don't see 
you know, massive, we don't, we don't see like cancer rates strongly associated with background radiation. You'd think that just, you know, a 10% uh, sort of dose, uh, extra dose is not going to um, be something that harms people. Um, but again, that's, that's, that's not what LNT says. So in the book, Devaney goes through uh, dozens of studies. Um, he looks at the survivors of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, it looks at um, cases of naval workers who are working on nuclear ships and submarines. Um, there was one case where an apartment building in, I think, Taiwan was accidentally built with uh, rebar uh, that contained uh, radioactive cobalt, and they didn't realize it for a long time, so all these people living in the apartment had gotten this extra dose. Uh, there are studies looking at the people who live in these uh, areas uh, like Kerala, India, where the beaches sort of have this thorium sand that's like, uh, I can't remember if the thorium is in Kerala, but there, there are places like this that have the, the natural sort of background um, uh, radiation at elevated levels. Um, and, and basically none of these um, studies seem to give uh, support to LNT, or at least the weight of them, you know, seems to, seems to be giving um, support to uh, a, a, an alternate theory, which is that um, the, 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 the effects are nonlinear. Uh, they are, you know, very small, uh, doses of radiation are much less harmful than the linear theory would imply if you just extrapolate from, from high doses. Um, and so there really ought to be some sort of, um, uh, threshold that we cannot say is, um, uh, maybe absolutely safe, like is, is adding zero to your, uh, you know, to your overall risk. But there certainly should be some level where we say, look, this is adding such a negligent amount, and it's so within the levels of background radiation that there's just, um, you know, there's sort of no point in driving the the radiation risk below a certain level. Gotcha. Yeah. Thank you for that explanation, because uh, I know it's an important issue, and I don't see nuclear proponents talking a lot of, about it. And uh, it was something that jumped out in, the, in your blog about that to me. That was sort of like a new. Uh, new barrier for nuclear that I really hadn't heard too much about. So um, I do want to give our listeners like a, a sort of a broad overview of your work and uh, move on to just a lot of the other writing that you do is just about progress more broadly, um, not just focusing on like certain technologies and things. So um, in April, you wrote about uh, why pessimism sounds smart. And uh, on our podcast here, we talk a lot about uh, – how in the past, you know, there's been uh, pessimistic, you know, sort of outlooks into the future and how those things <laughs> haven't really panned out. Um, talk a little bit about your thoughts there. You know, is, is pessimism a major obstacle to progress broadly? And why why is it that pessimism sounds smart to people? Yeah. Um, yeah, let me answer the second one, and then I'll talk about pessimism and optimism and kind of what I think about those terms. Sure. Um, so what, yeah, so what occurred to me was um, it, it, what I said in that, in that essay about why pessimism sounds smart. I was thinking about, so this, this, this has been no, uh, observed by a number of, of people uh, an, uh, a number of different times that um, you kind of, if you, if you have some pessimistic outlook on the future, you're just much more likely to come across as kind of sophisticated, wise, worldly, uh, intelligent, you know, or something. And if you have a more optimistic uh, look, it just somehow is, it's, you're more likely to come across as um, naive or, um, you know, not, you're not really getting it. And I was thinking a little bit about this and, and the, what, what, what re I realized was um, that the way we, let me put it this way, the way that we make progress um, is by really a constant series of breakthroughs. 
um, in a way that where nobody can really predict uh, exactly what's going to happen or where the new solutions are going to come from. Um, and because of that, um, so, so, so if you step back and you look at different technologies and different industries and so forth, um, what you find is that every uh, technology goes through a, a kind of an S-curve, right? So it, uh, it starts off slow. Um, and then as we start to figure out how to use it, and uh, there's a lot of investment in it, we make very rapid progress in that field. And then um, we've kind of hit the, uh, the, the potential of that technology, and it starts to plateau. Um, and so, uh, you know, you might see this, for instance, in types of engines, like, so maybe we made the steam engine and then we made steam engines better and improved the efficiency. But then at a certain point, like in terms of efficiency or power to weight ratio or whatever, is like only so far that you can push the steam engine. Then you have to switch to something like the internal combustion engine, right? And that's where you get the next level. Um, but if nobody had invented the internal combustion engine yet, imagine you were just looking at steam engine progress. Well, you, if you tried to extrapolate out, you could just say, well, you know, we're running out of things, to, ways to make steam engines better. So um, I just see progress trailing off here, right? And in order to see progress continuing, you would have to hypothesize some unknown uh, breakthrough that you could not specify and could not prove. And so, um, and this is just the, this is, this is absolutely the nature of progress. We're constantly coming up with breakthroughs that were unforeseen and probably unforeseeable very far in advance. Uh, but it is the constant succession of those breakthroughs that keeps progress going and keeps us from plateauing and leveling off on, on, on progress from any one technology. So um, what I realized was if you want to be really sort of um, epistemically sound and grounded, and you want to not wildly speculate, and you're just going to look at what is known and proven, um, and you're going to extrapolate where will the future go. Well, if you stick to only the known and proven things, all the known and proven things are going to uh, level off, plateau, uh, all the known and pre proven resources are going to run out, right? So we see this with oil. Whenever you just kind of look at um, known proven resources, you say, all right, we're going to run out of oil in such and such a date. And those predictions keep being wrong. We keep blasting through them. Be why? Well, because we keep discovering new resources and we keep inventing new technology that makes uh, some stores of oil uh, profitable to extract when they weren't previously profitable. And if the price goes up a little bit, then suddenly new methods are profitable and they weren't profitable before, right? Um, and so you, in order to forecast unlimited progress, you have to, at some level, believe in the unknown and the unproven. And, uh, and so that just I think by its nature will uh, will often sound a little naive. Whereas sticking to the the you know the sort of very well researched, uh, not speculative, extrapolating just from the present day will always lead you into some scenario where we get stuck and we stagnate. Um, and so that was ultimately why I said, quote unquote, you know this this is why pessimism sounds smart. Um, another thing that I pointed out in that essay is that um, you know it's generally the case that we. Uh, first identify a problem before we know how to solve it. And only later this, do we figure out the solution. Well, that means in any rapidly progressing society, there's going to be some frontier of problems that we have identified, but not yet, know, not yet figured out how to solve. And so in any era, you can find that that is where the pessimists are concentrating their attention. They're pointing out all the problems we know about that we don't have solutions for. And essentially saying, since there's no solution for this problem, that this problem is going to 
uh, kill us all, or it's going to cause progress to grind to a halt, or it's going to cause some disaster calamity, or, you know, whatever. They have different different predictions. Um, and again, those things keep, uh, you know, for the most part, not coming true. Um, certainly, when it comes to things like resource shortages and and so forth. Um, but it's because of uh, the the unknown and unforeseeable solutions, you know, that that came along. Um, now, I. Um, I hesitate often to call myself an optimist uh, because I think that um, I, I don't like to call myself an optimist without qualifying it somewhat because I think optimism can mean different things. Um, and in particular, I think um, uh, if you have optimism without action, that is really just complacency, right? Optimism has to be combined with the understanding that, hey, I'm optimistic not because I think the problem is going to solve itself, or because, or I'm not even optimistic because I think the problem won't be hard to solve. I'm optimistic because I think no matter how hard it is, if we focus and concentrate and bring our best efforts and work really hard, we can solve the problem eventually. Um, Right. Whereas, you know, pessimism in a certain sense is sometimes warranted if all that that means is you're looking at a really difficult problem that we're facing that's going to be really hard and, and is a huge challenge. That kind of pessimism is quite warranted uh, in, in many situations. What uh, uh, the, the kind of pessimism that I that I that I don't tend to agree with is defeatism. The not only is here is a hard problem, but there's no way that we're going to solve it. So the you know the intersection of those where you're you're both maybe pessimistic about how hard the problem is going to be, but optimistic that we can solve it if we bring our best efforts is I think really the best place to be. Uh, and so uh, I, I had an article a while ago in the MIT Technology Review where I used the term solutionism for this mindset, right? Where neither complacent optimism nor defeatist pessimism, but uh, something that sort of recognizes and acknowledges. The reality of problems, but then is uh, bold and confident uh, in going out with our best efforts to solve them. It's really interesting. Yeah, that I never really thought of it like that. Like too much, too much optimism or too much pessimism, your leads to inaction. Kind of like what you said there, and I, I, I like that framing of it. Where on um, you're you're not really embracing either one too much, but not rejecting either one too much. Uh, it's an interesting model. I had never really thought of things like that. Um, the, the example I used yeah. in that uh, MIT article, by the way, that the sort of historical example I, I kind of based things on was um, uh, what was termed the wheat problem in the late 1800s, um, where essentially the world was running out of fertilizer and uh, we weren't going to be able to sustain agriculture and population growth. And uh, the president of a British uh, um, uh, scientific uh, society uh, William Crooks uh, uh, used uh, his annual speech to focus on this problem and uh, you know call out how bad it was going to be. But at the same time, he also called on the chemists of the world to solve this problem by creating synthetic fertilizer. And that is exactly what happened. Within uh, less than two decades after that speech, we had a pro the Haber-Bosch process to uh, create synthetic fertilizer um, or synthetic ammonia, which is the precursor of, of fertilizer. Um, and, uh, and so it's exactly that kind of thing where people called Crooks alarmist. And in a certain sense, he was alarmist, but he was not pessimistic. He was actually optimistic that we could solve the problem. He just thought that we had to get everybody paying attention and putting resources into it um, as, as the only way the problem was going to get solved. So I think that, you know, sometimes um, when, uh, you know, when, 
when there are predictions of doom uh, or, or these sort of defeatist, pessimistic arguments out there, people who are more positive about technology, they want to push back. And unfortunately, I think sometimes they push back by denying that the problem even exists or by claiming that it will be easy to solve. I think that's a mistake. We should acknowledge problems and acknowledge they're going to be hard, but then we should go out and, and solve them and have confidence that somehow, some way we can do so. Yeah, so another part of the uh, Roots of Progress project has been uh, you've been giving talks uh, about a lot of the themes that you cover in the blog. I really enjoyed your talk, uh, Can Growth Continue?, which I believe there's a video of on, uh, on your website that I'll attach to the show notes. Um, can you talk a little bit about economic growth and its import importance to progress? Uh, what do we mean by economic growth? First of all, you know, it, it's something that's just sort of taken as a given in policy circles that you know, we, we want economic growth, but nobody ever really um, really talks about what we actually mean by that. And then uh, why is it important though, too? Yeah. So I gave a five minute uh, talk on this, a very condensed capsule summary of a complex topic uh, for the uh, Ignite Long Now event uh, through the Long Now Foundation, uh, where they do five minute talks. Um, I uh, will have a, I uh, plan to have a chapter on this in the book that I'm writing about industrial civilization. Um, and, and in that chapter, what I'm looking at is, uh, yeah, is this question of, okay, we've had lots of growth, lots of progress, lots of technological advancement, lots of improvement in living standards, um, but is that coming to an end? Are we gonna see a future of slow to zero growth or can that, that the amazing progress of the last couple hundred years uh, continue? Um, so you ask, what is economic growth? Um, uh, I mean, ultimately, economic growth means more production, and especially means more production per person. Um, and by production, I mean production of all of the goods and services that are valued in an economy. Everything from the home you live in, uh, the electricity that powers it, uh, the food you eat, the, the the car that you drive, or or the you know the other whatever other transportation you take, um, the medical services which uh, which might save your life or prevent you from from getting a disease. Um, all of these things, uh, uh, you know, not to mention the internet and um, uh, podcasts, of course, and uh, uh, you know, all of these things that are all of these uh, uh, economic goods and services. That's the sum total of that um, is what we mean by economic production, and the increase in the amount of this, uh, you know, overall or per capita is what we mean by economic growth. Fundamentally, this is what enables us to uh, to live better lives. You know, better lives than we lived a few hundred years ago when you know the average person. Uh, did not have a toilet or running water, um, did not have gas or electricity, had to you know, cook their meals by making a fire in a cast iron stove, um, ate whatever was in season because you didn't have supply chains bringing you, you know, fresh food. You couldn't just open up the refrigerator and get like you know, fresh milk and, and, and oranges uh, you know, out of the fridge. Um, you know, at a time when you couldn't uh, get vaccinated against almost any diseases and where, uh, you know, catching many diseases in childhood was common, where, uh, you know, many children died in infancy or in childhood, often uh, because of these diseases, whether it was cholera, typhoid, dysentery, you know, all sorts of things like that, um, where the average person couldn't afford to go on, uh, you know, a foreign vacation and see uh, other lands. And you might not want to uh, anyway, because travel was slow and uncomfortable. Um, where you, we, there was no recorded music, and once a, an artist died, no one would ever hear them perform again. Uh, you know, I mean, I could go on and yeah. on, right? But that's the world that we used to live in, and and all of those things now are available to the vast majority of of people, at least in wealthy countries. So that's that's what we mean by economic growth and by living standards. 
why are ideas important to economic growth and what role do they play? Yeah, sure. So this is was sort of the core of that five minute talk. Um, so I'll kind of go through how uh, the the economics profession realized uh, its or came to its current understanding of the the importance of ideas and of technology. Um, and 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 where this comes from or where I traced it through is the the sort of building of uh, models of the economy. Um, so starting uh, in, I think around the 20th century, early 20th century, economists were building models of the economy where they would write some, some basic equations for how overall output or production might be produced as a function of inputs such as labor or capital. Um, in the 1950s, uh, a, a, a famous economist, Robert Sala, who went on to win the Nobel Prize for this work, uh, came up with a model of the economy where uh, he basically uh, realized that um, if you, uh, so, so economics up until that time had been very focused on capital accumulation, uh, which sort of made sense. Think about uh, all of the, uh, the, the, um, all the, in the, in the 20s, 30s, 40s in the US, all of the factories that got built, the electrical infrastructure, um, think about the tooling up for World War II and all of the machine tools that were built and the factories and it was all of this capital investment in machines and, and, and factories and equipment and tools. Um, and so economists were very focused on that. That seemed to be a place where we got more economic productivity from. Um, and it seemed to be maybe something that was driving uh, you know, per capita production. But um, the SOLA model sort of realized that, look, we're going to run into diminishing returns from capital accumulation alone. Um, you, if, if you want to increase output per worker, which ultimately is where sort of living standards come from, uh, you, you can't just increase capital per worker forever. Um, it turns out, depending on exactly how you parameterize your model, um, that the uh, as you start to accumulate more and more capital per worker, um, either basically all the capital eventually either gets eaten up in maintenance on the exist all your all your investment and in excess production gets eaten up in maintenance on the existing capital, or it gets eaten up in just trying to keep up with population growth because you have to build more capital for more workers as the size of the workforce increases. Whatever it is exactly in the model that you're working with. It, you can't sustain it forever. So in this uh, Solow model of the economy, if you don't have any technological change, then what happens is you hit a, uh, you hit a basically a steady state um, where per capita incomes are not increasing. At best, economic growth might just keep up with population, but not, not increase it as it did over, you know, uh, for, for more than 100 years, um, you know, up until that time. But um, Solow said, but look, we also have technology. Um, and, and actually, let's use a broader uh, concept. It's not just, maybe not just technology, but what he called technical change. And this could encompass all sorts of things like better factory organization, or even better capital deployment, or even in some models, better education and training of workers. Um, but all these things other than just man hours and dollars invested in capital that can make us more productive. And so he went and he measured, well, if we just take a model of the economy and we just look at total output and we compare it to um, uh, to capital increases and labor increases. What if we just tried to, to back out the effect of capital and labor and look at you know, how much output is unexplained uh, by, by those factors? And it turned out it was an enormous amount. Um, he found that from 1909 to 1949, the productivity multiplier that, uh, that you could uh, you know, you look at, in, in other words, how productive was a, you know, a, a unit of capital combined with a unit of labor, that productivity multiplier had almost doubled in those 40 years. And in fact, he attributed some 87.5% of the overall economic growth in that time to improved, uh, well, to technical change, right? Fundamentally sort of improved technology and, and factory organization and, and so forth. This was... Uh, 
was quite surprising to the field of economics. Uh, people were not expecting uh, that both in theory and in empirically that uh, you know capital accumulation alone was not going to lead to sustained growth, uh, but that technological change was going to be you know the key thing. Um, so that was where sort of things landed in you know the late 1950s. Um, what happened in uh, uh, some some decades later, and particularly with the work of Paul Romer um, and his sort of landmark 1990 paper, um, was uh, a, a, a sort of another level of our understanding of why is it that technological ideas are so powerful. Um, and um, what was happening at the time was uh, people were economists were sort of struggling with this question of like um, where does this technical change come from. Solaud's model, you know, had it as like a, a multiplier factor, but he didn't model where it comes from or how it's produced. And um, one thing in particular people were thinking about was, okay, well, like it seems clear just from looking out at the world that a lot of technological change comes from profit-seeking firms doing private R&D. But um, technological ideas have something of the character of like a public good. But, you know, if it's a pure public good, well, private firms can't get re can't really get reimbursed for that. They don't have the economic incentive to, to provide a pure public good. On the other hand, if it's a private good, well, then it's just kind of like another form of capital, right? And why wouldn't it have sort of the same uh, diminishing returns, you know, type effects as the other private capital that, that firms have? And so what Robert did was... Um, uh, so, so listeners, you know, if they're familiar with with economic theory in general, they might be familiar with the distinction between rivalry and excludability. Um, so, at the time of of, uh, of Romer, these concepts were fairly well known within like uh, public um, like public goods theory, um, but they weren't kind of like broadly known and, and applied within all of economics. And and Romer kind of realized, oh, what's going on here is that ideas are not a pure public good nor a pure private good. They are, um, ideas are non-rival, which means that um, they can be used by any number of people without diminishing the, you know, the stock of ideas that are available. Unlike any physical goods, right? Um, uh, if I eat an apple, you can't eat the same apple. If we want to split it, we have to cut it in half, right? But ideas are not like that. Um, I can use the Pythagorean theorem or Maxwell's equations or whatever, right? And you can use them at the exact same time with no diminishment of those ideas. Um, however, um, ideas are at least partially or temporarily excludable. Excludable meaning that you can prevent other people from using them or force you force them to pay you if they want to use them. And we do that through you know various mechanisms, but most obviously through intellectual property law such as patents. And so um, what Romer realized was the non-rivalry of ideas is what allows them to be so powerful in expanding the economy. The excludability or partial excludability, temporary excludability of ideas is what allows private R&D to, uh, to uh, create them and sort of reap rewards from that and ultimately have an economic model, a financial model that makes sense to keep investing in that R&D. And so um, he sort of brought these, uh, brought these concepts out. And, uh, and it was really ever since his work that people have been uh, that it's been, you know, so clear uh, to the world that it is this non-rivalry of ideas uh, that that really matters. What what Romer did was um, rather than think about inputs as mainly divided into capital and labor, and then you got this technology multiplier. He said, look, what we can really do fundamentally is separate all of the factors of production into rival factors and non-rival factors. Capital and labor are both rival factors, and we would expect that um, we're not we're going to hit diminishing returns, and we're not going to be able to. Um, uh, to keep growing uh, per capita incomes uh, just by scaling those things. 
Uh, but ideas, technology, um, et cetera, by being uh, non-rival um, means that uh, it, it, the, the technical term is that you get increasing returns to scale. That is, um, if I if I if I merely double capital and double labor, I get constant returns to scale. I just double my output, right? Think if I have a factory and it's got a bunch of people running it, and then I build an identical factory and, and hire an identical team to run it. I have I've doubled my uh, I've merely doubled my output, right? But I also have twice as many workers to pay. So each each worker's pay is not going to be able to go up. But if I also double the technology multiplier, such that each factory on its own can be twice as productive. Now I've made each worker twice as productive on average, and now per worker, uh, you know, incomes can rise. And so this is where we get um, actually sustained economic growth, uh, increasing returns to scale, and uh, and where we get you know life actually being be, being made better for uh, for each individual. So what do you see as being some of the biggest threats to growth? And then on the flip side, what are some areas where you're optimistic? Yeah, sure. Um, biggest threats to growth. Well, I I have um, in the past I've called out sort of three um, big ones that I see. Um, so one is uh, the the overburden of regulation. Um, I think that uh, the, I mean so we gave some of the examples of in in nuclear, yep. um, and there are um, I mean there are a number of other examples. A number of people have uh, pointed to. Um, the FDA and the way that they uh, uh, perhaps slowed down or got in the way of things like uh, testing and um, uh, and vaccines. People are still wondering why we don't have um, uh, new types of vaccines that are uh, targeted at the new variants of COVID um, that have come out, which would be very easy uh, to do with sort of you know the 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 uh, the mRNA based technology. Um, uh, so, you know, there's a number of places where it seems like our regulatory ratchet has ratcheted, you know, uh, at least a few notches too far and is probably, you know, doing more harm than good. Um, another thing that I point to that I think is a lot less obvious is the, uh, the way that we fund and uh, manage research and development today, and in particular, the sort of centralization and bureaucratization of research funding and its consolidation, especially in the U.S., into... Uh, a small number of large federal agencies. Um, this, uh, this, uh, there are good arguments that this has led to well blind spots. Whenever you have a single agency, no matter how amazing they are, they're going to have some things that they that are worth funding that they don't realize are worth funding. And so, when you have a single agency dominating uh, funding, as for instance NIH does for life sciences, uh, then you've got a world where anything that's in their blind spot might have a hard time getting funded, even if it's very valuable. Um, contrast that for, with a world where maybe there were 10 or 12 different agencies, all of which were roughly equal in stature, no one of which was dominant. You know, if one of them turns you down for funding, maybe you could go to the next one and the next and the next. You only have to get one to say yes, you know, to your work in order to fund it. But that's not the situation that we have today. Um, uh, and there's also arguments that the particular way that we do uh, funding, especially through NIH and NSF, um, we do it through these uh, grants that are based on kind of committee-based uh, peer review. Uh, and there are good arguments. I think that this leads to uh, sort of the, the sort of thing that sets up uh, a risk of consensus and groupthink, um, where what we really need in science is breakthrough maverick ideas that challenge old paradigms and challenge you know, status quo. Um, and so then number three thing I would point to is just overall cultural attitudes towards progress. Um, in the 20th century, uh, particularly after the world wars, 
uh, people in the West, at least, I would say uh, there grew up a lot of fear, distrust, and skepticism around progress. And I think we still see a lot of that with us today. Um, uh, a lot of people are not optimistically looking forward to uh, amazing things that we could get from nuclear technology, from space travel, from um, uh, from artificial intelligence, from uh, genetic engineering. Um, you know, they a lot of people today look at those things and 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 just worry that they would do more harm than good, or they um, uh, or they just look at the future and uh, uh, and they just don't see a bright future for humanity at all. And so then, why even bother? You know, working to make things great. Um, now, to be clear. There are always risks associated with new technology, and um, I mean to go back to my sort of optimism pessimism design, right? We shouldn't we shouldn't be complacent about those risks. Um, I think uh, uh, I think you know biotechnology obvi has obvious risks that we need to be aware of, and I and I, I doubt we are really dealing with well today. Um, artificial intelligence probably has some some serious risks we should be thinking about. Um, but I think that uh, a, a lot of mainstream thought is just sort of dominated by uh, the downsides and doesn't even see the potential positive goal that we could go for if we develop these technologies wisely. Um, uh, so, you know, those are the three things. And I mean, obviously, they, um, they interact with each other. But, uh, you know, one, uh, overregulation, two, centralization and bureaucratization of, of research funding, um, and three, sort of cultural attitudes that are uh, that are very pessimistic about progress. Those are the kind of the biggest problems that I see. Great. This has been kind of a whirlwind conversation. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, but before we go, uh, what are, what plans do you have for the future of Roots of Progress, and where do you see the project going from here? Yeah, sure. We're actually going to have some announcements to make uh, pretty soon. So uh, stay, stay tuned to our, uh, our uh, website, uh, rootsofprogress.org, and follow me on, on Twitter uh, if you want to get the latest. But um, we, are, we are planning to expand our activities, um, and I would like to make this about sort of more than just me. Um, I would like to be supporting other um, intellectuals and creatives who want to do work in progress studies and the philosophy of progress. Um, we have already uh, done some work in hosting conferences and workshops, and we're going to continue doing that. Um, we are building an online home for the progress community uh, called the Progress Forum uh, that has been announced, and we're beta testing it right now. Um, that is going to be a place for long-form discussion, uh, not to mention community organizing, uh, where you'll go, be able to go to find out about local meetups and, and so forth, things like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, we've got a lot of stuff planned and, uh, please, uh, subscribe to our mailing list, follow me on Twitter, whatever works for you to, uh, to get those announcements as they're ready. I guess today has been Jason Crawford. Jason, thank you for your time today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's a great conversation. <laughs>